Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today, we conclude our series in the book of Habakkuk. And we spend, I think this is week seven, on this little book that appears to be very relevant to us today. We have seen the prophet Habakkuk journey from disappointment and unbelief and concern and struggle and doubt to faith and contentment. And this transformation happened actually as he was talking with God. As he brought his troubled heart to God, God worked with him and God counseled him and God answered his questions and God revealed things to him and God strengthened him for what is to come. And so the book actually ends on a joyful note, which gives all of us hope. Chapter 3 is the last chapter, and it is a psalm. It's a, it's a worship song that Habakkuk wrote for us, for us to sing and for us to reflect on what God spoke to him about and for us to learn from this book and actually put it into practice through worship. We looked at the majority of chapter 3 last week, and we're going to finish the very end of it, the famous passage verses 17 through 19 that Hudson read for us. This song, this psalm, this worship song ends with a resolution to rejoice in suffering. Habakkuk commits to rejoice in suffering. The Lord told him that the Babylonian army is coming. This is his chosen instrument to address the sin in Judah, but that it will bring complete devastation to the people and to the land of Habakkuk. And so he's contemplating the prospect of that Babylonian invasion, and he is determined to rejoice in the Lord. Notice that Habakkuk doesn't just surrender to God's will and say, I will, I will bear this pain, I will get through it, I will persevere until it's over. No, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Not just acceptance, not just a stoic surrender, but rejoicing in it. And this, this great tragedy that is about to happen uh, to him and his people. How is it possible to rejoice in the midst of deep suffering? Can we rejoice in our own seasons of suffering? I'd like us to look at our text under three headings. Number one, the joyless predicament. The joyless predicament. Number two, the prospect of happiness. The prospect of happiness. And three, the promise of salvation. The joyless predicament, the prospect of happiness, and the promise of salvation. Everyone who looks at this passage naturally asks, how can anyone be joyful, happy, while experiencing such loss and pain? It's a natural question to ask, and let's be honest and ask it. Look at verse 17. Habakkuk says, 
though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be and there be no herd in the stalls. This is, this is a picture of, of complete economic collapse. When the Babylonian army came, when they finally came, they devoured all the available resources and destroyed everything. The majority of the population were either killed or taken into exile. Those who survived, those who stayed, were hiding in the mountains, just foraging, just trying to get anything to, to eat. Habakkuk is describing complete devastation of an agrarian society. No harvest, no cattle, simply means no life. There's nothing to live on. To put it in perspective, you wake up one morning, imagine there's no money at the bank, no gas at the gas station, no groceries in the stores, no medicine at the pharmacy, no schools, no jobs. This is what Habakkuk is envisioning, and this is what he will experience. How can anyone rejoice under such circumstances? This is a valid, fair question we have to ask. And I'd like to answer it from the Bible in the course of this sermon. But before we answer it or try to answer it, I'd like to uncover an assumption underneath this question. We're all asking the question, and we all share an assumption behind this question. The assumption is that our happiness is connected with economic prosperity, health, and security. Now, the reason this sounds weird to us when Habakkuk says, even though there's a complete economic collapse and, and an invasion happens, and we're all running for our lives, I will rejoice. He says that, and it sounds weird to us because we don't imagine our happiness apart from those happy things. Security economic stability, groceries, money, gas, those kinds of things. When we say, how can anyone be joyful in suffering, we assume that we should be joyful when we are not suffering. That's the assumption. It's difficult for us to imagine joy in suffering because we assume that joy comes apart from suffering, away from it. Many people believe that the path to joy lies in professional achievements, accumulation of possessions, approval of others, and experience of comfort. When we lack any of these things, we are dissatisfied with our lives and think it is natural under those circumstances to be unhappy. When we finally get what we pursue, we can finally be happy. But is that true, is my question. We assume that, coming to this passage, we assume that Habakkuk is joyful in suffering, and that's strange because we envision ourselves being joyful apart from suffering. And when we get what we want, we expect to be happy. But is it true? Now, I've been reading uh, columns in the Atlantic by Arthur C. Brooks, who's been researching human happiness and has been writing about human happiness. Listen to how he describes his own experience. He says, on my 40th birthday, I made a bucket list of things I hope to do or achieve. 
They were mainly accomplishments that only a wonk could want. Writing books and columns about serious subjects, teaching at a top school, traveling to give lectures and speeches, maybe even leading a university or, or a think tank. Whether these were good and noble goals or not, they were my goals, and I imagined that if I hit them, I would be satisfied. I found that list nine years ago when I was 48 and realized that I had achieved every item on it. I had been a tenured professor, then the president of a think tank. I was given frequent speeches, had written some books that had sold well, and was writing columns for the New York Times. But none of that had brought me the lasting joy I had envisioned. Each accomplishment thrilled me for a day or a week, maybe a month, never more. And then I reached for the next rung on the ladder. He calls it the dissatisfaction problem. The dissatisfaction problem. And it is a universal human predicament. We keep pursuing things we believe should make us happy only to discover that they don't, at least not in any lasting way. I mean, isn't that the point of the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's pursued all these things, and he found them to be not satisfying. They may be good, but they're not satisfying. They don't bring us joy that we think they should. Now, interestingly, Arthur Brooks' solution to the dissatisfaction problem is to get off the treadmill of achievement and recalibrate our desires. I agree to a certain extent. I certainly agree that our problem with dissatisfaction has to do with our desires in some way. But he says that in his view, the secret to satisfaction is simply to want less. So he's processing that and he's thinking, okay, I've wanted all these things, I've got them, I'm not happy. What if I want less things? What if I achieve less and maybe I'd be happy with it if I do that? Maybe it's helpful. Maybe a part of this approach can be helpful, but I think it's, it's more managing our dissatisfaction than actually solving the problem of it. Sure, if I'm not as ambitious in my career, not getting a promotion won't hurt as badly. It's one of those things where you go to the boss's office and, and they say, I'm sorry, we've, we've picked someone else for this promotion, and you say, well, I didn't want it anyway. No, no problem. I don't, don't care that much anyway. I think that's sort of where Brooks is leading us and saying, if you just kind of lower your expectations, you, you want less, then maybe you'll be happier. I do think he's on the right path, We've got a right idea that our happiness is connected to our desires somehow and that our desires need to be recalibrated. Christianity is just as disillusioned with worldly achievements as Brooks is, and yet Christianity proposes that we need to want more and not less. The Christian perspective teaches that we will ultimately not be satisfied with possessions or approval or comfort precisely because we are capable of desiring and acquiring something greater. Now, you see the difference, right? Brooks is saying nobody's really happy with what we get, so let's try to want less and get less and be happier. 
and I think it works to some degree. Christianity says we're not happy with what we get because we are meant to get more. We're meant to want more, desire more, and get more than we think we're capable of. Now listen to the 17th century Scottish theologian Henry Scougal. I'm going to be quoting from the Puritans. This is a Puritan-heavy sermon, okay? And I'm sorry for the archaic language, but in my view, nobody has thought more deeply about suffering and joy than the Puritans. So I'm relying on them. Henry Scougal says, Amidst all our pursuits and designs, let us stop and ask ourselves, for what end is all this? At what do I aim? Can the gross and muddy pleasures of sense, or a heap of white and yellow earth, or the esteem and affection of silly creatures like myself, satisfy a rational and immortal soul? Have I not tried these things already? Will they have a higher relish and yield me more contentment tomorrow than yesterday, or the next year than they did the last? There may be some little difference between that which I am now pursuing and that which I enjoyed before. But sure, my former enjoyments did show us pleasant and promise us fair before I attained them. Like the rainbow, they looked very glorious at a distance. But when I approached, I found nothing but emptiness and vapor. And this is the key phrase. Oh, what a poor thing would the life of man be if it were capable of no higher enjoyments. What a poor thing would the life of man be if it, were not cap- if it were capable of no higher enjoyments. He's saying that we are capable of higher enjoyments, which is why we can never be fully satisfied with lesser enjoyments. Now the reason you're never going to be happy with any promotion at work totally and lastingly is because that's too little. It's not because it's too much. It's not enough to satisfy your soul. The secret of satisfaction is to put these lesser enjoyments, work, human relationships and praise, comfort, health, the secret is to put that in their proper place and pursue something different, something greater than that. Now look at verse 18. I'm getting all of this from Habakkuk. Verse 18 says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even though there's a complete economic collapse. My health is in danger. I don't know what to eat. There's famine, starvation that are coming. Lots of people are dead. There's no economic prosperity in sight. There's no security. Habakkuk says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. While experiencing suffering and loss and understandably struggling with it. The Bible doesn't expect us not to struggle with that. It's understandable that we do. Habakkuk says, I will rejoice anyway. I will rejoice anyway. But that's not exactly what he says. He's not saying, I'll rejoice anyway regardless of what happens because it doesn't matter to me. This loss is not as great as, as I think it is or doesn't hurt me as much and I don't want as much of it as I've lost. 
I'll just rejoice anyway. That's not what he's saying. He's not following Arthur Burke's advice. What he says actually is, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord, or can be translated as, I will rejoice because of the Lord. Habakkuk, in the midst of this incredible loss and suffering, not negating that loss, is pursuing a higher enjoyment. He's looking for satisfaction apart from what he has lost in the invasion. According to the Bible, the prospect of happiness lies in our experience of God Himself directly. Consistently throughout the Bible, the call to rejoice is set in the context of relationship with God. For example, Philippians 4, verse 4, famous passage. The Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, he's not just saying, no matter what happens, just be happy. He's not saying that. He's saying, no matter what happens, always rejoice in the Lord. Go to Him for your satisfaction. And like in Paul's circumstances and Habakkuk's circumstances, and Paul's in prison when he's writing Philippians, the call to rejoice is often made in the midst of loss and suffering. When lesser satisfactions like comfort and health and money disappear, the greater satisfaction with God Himself becomes possible. Listen to Skrugel again. He says, The soul of man is of a vigorous and active nature and has in it a raging and unextinguishable thirst, an immaterial kind of fire, always catching at some objects or other, in conjunction wherewith it thinks to be happy. And were it once rent from the world, and all the bewitching enjoyments under the sun, it would quickly surge after some higher and more excellent object, to satisfy its ardent, ardent and unfortunate cravings, and being no longer dazzled with glittering vanities, would fixed on that supreme and all-sufficient good, where it would discover such beauty and sweetness as would charm and overpower all its affections. Friends, this is a difficult truth for us to accept, but the hope of lasting happiness only appears through loss and pain. The hope of lasting happiness only appears through loss and pain. Our hearts must lose the lesser joys to look for the greater joy in God. Disillusionment with the world, which can only happen through physical and emotional suffering, forces us to look for joy somewhere else and can ultimately lead us to God Himself. By admitting that the world cannot satisfy our hearts, we can finally consider the possibility that our hearts are not made to be satisfied by the world. Another Puritan quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs says, A soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing else but God. Nothing but God can fill a soul that is capable of God. 
though a gracious heart knows that it is capable of God and was made for God. Carnal hearts think without reference to God. But a gracious heart, being enlarged to be capable of God and enjoying somewhat of Him, can be filled by nothing in the world. It must only be God Himself. Burroughs says that a carnal heart, a heart that's not been affected by God, can only see the lesser joys and ultimately can never be satisfied with them. But a gracious heart, a heart transformed by God, is enlarged. It's been opened up to the possibility of being capable of experiencing God directly. So my question to us, this is where it gets extremely practical for us. Do you have a carnal heart or a gracious heart? Have you learned yet that the dissatisfaction problem cannot be solved by getting more things, by avoiding illness, by traveling to exciting places and getting praise from others? Have you learned that yet? That's the stuff of carnal hearts. A gracious heart knows that those things can be nice, but they cannot fulfill us. Our souls are capable of God and cannot be satisfied with anything but Him. The question is whether you have been given a gracious heart to know that. This is what the Bible calls conversion or new birth. God takes our carnal heart which is attached to all sorts of things that cannot fulfill us, and then he replaces it with a new heart, a heart capable of God and aware of the fact that it is capable of God. Have you been converted? Have you met God in that way? Or are you still hoping that the world can fulfill you? For a Christian, another definition of a Christian would be a person with a new heart, a person with this gracious heart, For a Christian, a time of suffering can be a very meaningful experience. Let me quote from another Brooks, two Brooks quotes, different Brooks, no relation. This is David Brooks. He's recently been converted and he's been writing about his experience and recalibration of his life. He says, the normal reaction to a season of suffering is to try to get out of it. Address the symptoms, have a few drinks, play a few sad records, move on. The right thing to do when you're in moments of suffering is to stand erect in the suffering. Wait. See what it has to teach you. Understand that your suffering is a task that, if handled correctly with the help of others, will lead to enlargement, not diminishment. The valley is where we shed the old self so the new self can emerge. He's learning that as a new believer, as a new Christian. We as Christians are learning that continuously, that a time of suffering can be incredibly meaningful for a Christian who knows that his or her soul is capable of God and cannot be satisfied but by God alone. The transformation that Brooks is talking about is the same transformation that happened with Habakkuk. His desires got recalibrated in the course of his conversation with God during a season of suffering. Habakkuk, now hear me on this, Habakkuk benefited tremendously from the Babylonian invasion. 
It's hard to hear. It's hard for me to think of these things now because Ukraine is, looks like about to be invaded. And I think about what people are feeling there. And I think about Habakkuk and I think about myself and I say, but that too, a thing like that, a suffering like that could be used by God to recalibrate our desires and to enlarge our hearts. When Habakkuk ran for the hills, he gained a new perspective on life, a better perspective, a more secure hold on reality with God at its center. And that is what can happen to us too, to any one of us, any one of us who's suffering, any one of us that has been converted has a new heart that is capable of God. We can develop a new set of priorities when we suffer. Look at the grammar of Habakkuk's statement. Look at the grammar that he's using here. Though, notice the word, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no, be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Though yet, though I lack these things, yet I will rejoice because I have God. Though yet, I want to be straightforward with you and tell you that you can only learn this principle of though yet. You can only learn it in suffering. There's no other place you can learn that in. You have to experience the though before you can experience the yet. You, you can't know the yet, the satisfaction with God, unless you've experienced the though of loss and suffering. Though I have cancer, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Though I have no money, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Though my friends betrayed me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Though I lost my job, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. This is how our desires get recalibrated. This is how we learn to want God and be satisfied with Him. You have to lose a little to gain much. You have to lose the temporal to gain the eternal. That is the only way to get it. But once you have God, once you know Him, once you have experienced His sufficiency, your perspective becomes very different. You live out of a gracious heart. And yes, there is still loss, there is still pain in this life, there are real, there are hard, and you struggle with it, and it hurts. But now there is meaning there, and God is there, and God is enough. Let me use an illustration. Imagine you get a call from a lawyer, and after you've quieted your heart, after a call from a lawyer, you realize this is a good call. He tells you that your distant uncle has passed away and left his whole estate to you alone. The lawyer says you can come, sign the papers, and take possession of his large property outside of town and his vast financial fortune. You are naturally overjoyed. You get into your 91 Honda Civic and drive to your uncle's house. It's about an hour away and about a mile or so from the house, from the uncle's house, your car finally gives out. 
You have to walk the rest of the way. Wouldn't it be strange for you when you get there and you sit down with the lawyer and you sign the papers, wouldn't it be strange for you to say, I'm so angry about my stupid car breaking down on the way here. I can't even bring myself to look at these papers. This is how angry I am with my car. Wouldn't it be strange for you to even not walk to the house, but sit down by the car on the side of the road and weep over the broken down Civic? It's not a bad picture of the Christian life. Yes, bad things happen. Difficult things happen. Painful things happen. But perspective is important. What you lose in this life can never be. It's impossible for any of those things to be more important than what you gain with God. I want to show you something else from this passage. There's a promise of salvation here. In verse 18, Habakkuk says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We already located joy in God, and now Habakkuk tells us there's, there's a description to this God. This is a God of my salvation. Now, what salvation is he talking about? And what does it have to do with rejoicing and suffering? Well, clearly, in context, Habakkuk means salvation during the invasion. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. As Habakkuk runs for the hills, he's trusting God to sustain him there. This is immediate salvation he's talking about, at least in part. God will help him navigate the dangerous mountain terrain of suffering. He's counting on that. He's counting for God to give him strength to persevere, to get through the season. This is the immediate salvation. God will be with him in the suffering. God will guide him through. God will sustain him. God will give him strength to navigate the hills. He makes my feet like the deer's, meaning that deer can navigate the kind of terrain that we can't. So God will make me in my suffering. God makes Habakkuk in his suffering someone who can navigate a difficult terrain. You want your feet to be like the deer's feet? Not really, not me. How will I fit them into my Adidas if they look like deer's feet? But what I need is I need God to sustain me, to equip me, to support me so I can go through loss and sickness and pain because He is the God of my salvation now. Though you will be living in the hills for a while, God will provide for you there. He will make you strong enough to survive it. Of course, in the Bible, salvation has another connotation. God is the God of ultimate salvation, not just immediate salvation now, but ultimate salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from wrath, Salvation from hell and the ultimate meaninglessness and joylessness of eternity without God. Again, we think too small, God thinks bigger. We think it's enough if God just helps me immediately. God says, I'll help you immediately, but I'll help you ultimately as well. God saves us from all of that by grace, 
And that reality does not change when we hurt or doubt or struggle. How can I know God as the God of my salvation? How is this salvation achieved? Several hundred years after Habakkuk's experience of the Babylonian invasion, Jesus Christ was taken to the hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. And on that cross, he not only lost his health, his possessions, his reputation, and his comfort, his life itself, but he also lost God. When he was dying, Jesus exclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The soul of Jesus that was not only capable of God, but was filled with God and satisfied with God from all eternity when the Son of God existed as part of the joy of the Trinity, that soul was abandoned on the cross and descended into the godless depths of human sin. The loss and pain of Jesus on the cross are simply unimaginable to us. We don't have the categories to fit them in. We cannot emotionally connect with what Jesus was feeling. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross, endured that kind of cosmic separation from God, that kind of ultimate destruction. He endured that for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. Now, of course, Jesus experienced full restoration of his joy in the resurrection and then the ascension to the Father. But it was not only his joy that was set before him when he was dying. It was also our joy. Our joy, too, was in his sight as he was suffering. The joy of those who live in the joyless predicament. The joy of those who've been, who've been they, we've heard of this prospect of happiness. We instinctively think it should be possible, but not until the cross can we actually experience it. The prospect of human happiness is inseparable from the cross of Jesus Christ. Our desire for God is awakened and satisfied on that cross. The cross is the departure and destination in our pursuit of joy. The cross is where Jesus was forsaken for you and for me so that we can never be forsaken by God. The cross is why you are never alone in your suffering. The Lord in whom you can rejoice is the Lord on the cross. He is the God of your salvation now and in eternity. When Lois Evans, the wife of Tony Evans, died from cancer three years ago, her son Jonathan gave the eulogy at her funeral. You may have seen the video. Jonathan said that he was praying for his mom to be healed from cancer and for God to reveal his glory in her healing. He thought this is a great opportunity for God to show the world his power and his glory through this healing. He was wrestling with God not understanding why God chose not to heal her. He was wrestling with God, and God answered him. This is what he said. And he said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory. 
Just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. Because victory was already given to your mom. You don't understand because of the victory that I have given you. There was always only two answers to your prayers. Listen to this. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. (laughs) Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to me because of what I've already done for you. The two answers to your prayer are yes and yes. Because victory belongs to Jesus. Because of the victory of Jesus in our place, on that cross, we can rejoice in the Lord no matter what happens to you. And we, like Habakkuk, can bring our troubled hearts to Him, to God, and have our faith renewed and strengthened as we rest at the cross of Jesus.